Some bodies are just built to be thin. Yours is not. That was what my plastic surgeon said to me one afternoon in his office, after he'd already performed a full body lipo and a tummy tuck. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back to another episode of Are You Ready, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. So it's been a minute since I've done a story time-like podcast episode. We've been focusing a lot on sharing the extraordinary stories of my extraordinary guests. But the other day, I was scrolling through my Instagram feed when I stopped at a reel posted by my friend August. August is actually a food blogger, and she usually sticks to proving to her community that there's food at home, which is actually her username. But in this 60-second video, she takes us behind the curtain of her very first cosmetic procedure. Come with me to get 360 Lipo. First, we have to shower with this cleanser and nothing else. You can't even use lotion. They have me looking like Ashy Larry out here. I had to keep it light, so I had a smoothie. And of course, my wonderful husband took me to the surgery. This is something I've been wanting to do for some years, and I was so excited that it was finally happening. Once I got there, I had to fill out some paperwork. Then they put me in a room where the process of local anesthesia begins. You basically get so drowsy, and then they take you to the operating room. And let me tell y'all, it was so seamless. I really don't remember a thing. Once you're coherent enough, you're free to go home. You're probably thinking, and like, what did I have done? But with lipo, you're swollen after, so you don't see the final results for some weeks. And you have on like padding and a supportive garment too. And once I got home, I just had a little veggie soup for dinner and that's it. Plastic surgery may not be as taboo as it once was, but I still admired August's willingness to talk about it in such an open way. Indeed, considering the staggering statistics surrounding elective surgical procedures, it's a little disturbing that we're still so reluctant to have open, frank, and safe discussions on the topic. In 2021 alone, Americans spent over $14.6 billion on aesthetic procedures, with surgical revenues increasing by 63% from just the year before. The average plastic surgeon performed 320 surgical procedures in 2021, as compared with only 220 in 2020. That might sound massive, but South Korea, sometimes referred to as the plastic surgery capital of the world, actually performs one out of every four plastic surgeries in the world. By the time a woman reaches college age in Korea, there is nearly a 50% chance that she has had some type of cosmetic procedure. So against this backdrop, I thought about my own plastic surgery story, how reluctant I was to visit Korea for so many years because I was quite frankly afraid it might instigate another round of surgeries. I'm not saying that it's always a bad thing to get plastic surgery. There are definitely people who view it as sort of just a tool to make surface-level corrections only, like a Band-Aid over a paper cut, a bit of concealer over a pimple. But as you'll hear, that simply wasn't the case for me. In the end, I discovered that the wounds I was trying to heal were simply too deep to reach, even on the operating table. So... Without further ado, let's get into it. I know what you're trying to do, 
what you're trying to look like, Dr. Cohn said to me, and you'll never be that skinny girl. The finality of his words lashed me, even as he continued to run his hands along my torso, as if to reinforce the point. See, I'm no magician. Even I can't melt all this away. No, of course, I get that, I lied. I didn't get it. There were so many women out there who were skinny. My mom, my aunts, cousins, friends. Why couldn't I be one of them? What had I done to be forever exiled from this club to which every other woman in my family had been so readily admitted? Some bodies are just meant to be thin. Yours is not, he explained, perhaps picking up on my resentment. I looked up from the crown of his head, but not before noting, perhaps uncharitably, that his gray hairline continued to recede with every visit. He was seated on one of those adjustable stools with wheels that allowed him to circle my entire body at about chest level. I stood in the middle of his office in nothing but a loose hospital gown and socks, my arms spread out as if on a cross. I stared at the framed diplomas tacked against the wall behind him. University of Illinois, Chicago. They were crooked. According to the headline of the article hanging next to his diplomas, Dr. Cohn started his career as one of Chicago's top plastic surgeons at my little brother's alma mater. His clinic, the Cohn Center, resided on one of the mid-level floors of a pre-war building on Lakeshore Drive. It's always risky assuming that you know something about a person based upon the details, but the first time I was buzzed in through the glass door of the center— I noticed that there were no windows overlooking the curling blue lips of Lake Michigan in the lobby or any of the rooms I was ushered into for my appointments. The floor was carpeted in burgundy, faded with years of foot traffic, and between the cracked leather chairs pressed against the perimeter of the small waiting area sat fingerprinted binders of before and after transformations, pamphlets describing non-invasive procedures that were guaranteed to take years off your face. Tucked into the corner stood a small end table bearing an outdated Keurig machine and a typewritten sign with a Wi-Fi password in a small 4x6 picture frame, Transformation, with a dollar sign for the S. Over decades, Dr. Cohn had built a reliable clientele of Gold Coast soccer moms and professionals who swept into the center in pencil skirts that hugged asses that required no alteration, Lululemon leggings that clung to calves that needed no further sculpting. They'd looked down their perfectly straight noses through opaque Gucci sunglasses, their lips semi-permanently puckered around words like Botox, lipo, and more. They were, in some ways, the walking, talking equivalent of the Starbucks cup, the human embodiment of the promise that awaited those who entrusted their boobs, butts, and bellies to Dr. Cohn's capable hands. And I wanted to be one of them. You know, he said, finally pulling away from the budding love handles I'd asked him to consider removing, I've been on this cabbage soup diet. Do you like cabbage soup? I gazed at myself in the large, gilded mirror that looked decidedly out of place in otherwise Spartan surroundings leaning against the far wall. It took me about all of three seconds to run through the mental Rolodex of diets I'd been on since I was 11 years old, starting with a banana powder diet. Amma came home from work one day with a Ziploc bag filled with a fine brown powder that reminded me of that one scene in Annie Hall where Woody Allen sneezes over a glossy tabletop of cocaine. She pulled out one of the tiny spoons she used for dissolving sugar into her instant coffee and added the banana powder into the small dosing cup she'd unscrewed from the top of a crusty bottle of Robitussin. 
She held it under the faucet for a couple seconds, collecting a few tablespoons of water before stirring the contents with a single metal chopstick. She handed it to me, instructing me to down the entire thing like a shot of whiskey, something I only knew from the movies. For weeks, every night before bedtime, my mother and I performed this ritual, but to no avail. My body never slimmed down to meet my mother's. Thus, we'd, or I'd, moved on to the vinegar diet, the lean cuisine diet, the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, and most recently, the paleo diet, with varying degrees of success. In fact, my very first visit to Dr. Cohen's office back in 2011 had been my reward for losing about 40 pounds on one of the aforementioned diets. I'd promised myself that if I managed to reach a certain weight, I'd let a plastic surgeon take care of the rest. I lied to myself and to everyone else who asked, oh, I'm getting the surgery to remove the saggy skin from my extreme weight loss. Yes, there definitely was some sagginess resulting from my recent transformation, but the truth was... I was just exhausted of dieting, spending endless hours on the elliptical. I figured I'd done just enough on my own to merit taking out a loan to pay Dr. Cohen to suck out any remaining fat in my thighs, butt, and back. Yes, I had to take out a loan. $20,000, to be specific. Back then, that was the going rate for a full-body lipo, a mini tummy tuck, and buckle fat removal. In retrospect, it still astounds me that I was so willing to indebt myself for the next several years of my life. But is there anything more tantalizing to a professional dieter than hearing the words, oh, you can have the body of your dreams even if you have zero money to pay for it? The receptionist at Dr. Cohen's office quietly slid one of the many pastel-colored pamphlets across the counter while I considered making a follow-up appointment that first visit. On the cover, a woman with inhumanly perfect teeth smiled beatifically, her husband gazing down at her chiseled features with something meant to look like love. This was the face I could have. This was the husband I could have. This was the life I could have. With zero down payment and zero interest for the first 12 months, subject to credit check. Many years earlier, I'd confided in a friend that I was thinking about getting liposuction, to which she immediately replied, you'll never do it. You're too afraid of blood. This was true. Remains true. <laughs> I was known to pass out at the mere idea, not just sight of blood and needles. Thus, I was terrified when I walked into the facility that looked like a hospital, but sort of didn't too. Though it bustled with nurses and physicians with masks hanging off their ears, somehow, it lacked the incandescence, the towering ceilings, and the cool scent of sterility that Amma brought home with her from work. I was led into a small room filled with wooden lockers where I was instructed to leave my clothes, jewelry, and purse and change into a surgical gown. I was then seated in what looked to be a waiting area cordoned off into rooms by gauzy curtains where a nurse came by to stick me with an IV. Within minutes, my hand began to ache from the cold fluid, the blue veins between my fingers and wrist making the skin appear translucent and thin, like my mother's. Dr. Cohn wheeled into my room on one of those rolling stools. How you feeling? he asked. His face split into a warm smile, his chipmunk cheeks climbing all the way up to his eyes, and all I could think was that by the time this was all over, my own chipmunk cheeks would be gone forever. I'm nervous, I answered. I tucked my free hand, the one without a needle in it, beneath my thigh. Don't be nervous. I'll take good care of you. Now stand up for me, he gestured with one hand. 
I stood up and he wheeled himself toward me. He asked me to pull back the gown so he could have an unobstructed view of my torso. He placed both hands on either side of my ribcage and then followed the dip of my waist and the curve of my hip with a confidence that so resembled familiarity, it made me blush. I wondered for one absurd moment whether I was falling in love with this man who was old enough to be my father before he pulled out a black marker and started marking my flesh with short, sure strokes. By the time he'd left, I had perforated lines on my arms, shoulders, back, stomach, and thighs. Soon, nurses and an anesthesiologist came to see me with a rolling bed they helped me into before carting me off to the operating room. They made jokes. They told me funny stories, made me laugh in a room where even the sound of breathing seemed to careen off the walls like a rubber ball. Eventually, they placed a mask over my nose and mouth and had me count back from 100. 100, 99, 98, 97. I woke up to pain. I vaguely remembered Dr. Cohn's smiling face telling me that everything had gone well, the sound of the wheels on his stool whizzing away before I slipped back into a dreamless sleep. I woke up to pain again, this time more pressing, sharper. It wouldn't go away. I would soon learn that recovery from full-body lipo plus tummy tuck involved lying in bed with tubes sewn into your skin, emptying a bag of bodily fluids that filled up at the end of each day, nearly passing out at the sight of your own blood trickling out of holes that hadn't quite healed yet, and your mom coming over to your house on day eight to yell at you for not being able to go to the bathroom on your own yet. It wasn't pretty. But eventually, on day ten, Dr. Cohen removed the tubes and the bag— Within weeks, the holes closed up, and the bruises cascading down my stomach and thighs began to fade. When the swelling finally subsided, I loved how I could actually see evidence of the, quote, bone structure I'd inherited from my mother's face. My belly was something close to taut for the first time in my memory, and while there was still, yes, a little jiggle in my underarms and inner thighs, I could actually use the word shape to describe them. I remember peering at myself in the cheap mirror I kept in the closet of my guest bedroom and wondered, why did I wait so long to do this? I wasted years in a body I hated when I could have had this. A few weeks later, while walking to my car in the parking lot after shopping for a new wardrobe, Amma, who trailed behind me, said loud enough for me to hear, you did good. Getting this surgery was the right decision. Only, it wasn't the last one. I genuinely believe that some people view plastic surgery akin to an electric toothbrush. Back when I started dating Anthony, I made a very specific commitment to my teeth. I got them cleaned every three to six months, even got braces for a year, flossed regularly. I wanted my teeth to be as perfect as possible. I know it's a little random, but this is the things that you do when you start dating somebody. So when my dental hygienist suggested I start using an electric toothbrush to get at the hard-to-reach places along my gum line, I ordered one off Amazon like right then and there in the dental chair while she watched. I knew I didn't need an electric toothbrush, that I could survive very well without one. 
But since they were on sale, easy to use, and held the promise of making my biannual visits a bit less unpleasant, I bought one. Every once in a while, my mother will say something like, I think I'm going to get my neck done, or I think I want to get my eyelids fixed, or you see these bags while pointing at the space beneath her eyes? I need to do something about them. But Amma has never actually gone through with it because I think she knows deep inside her that she needs plastic surgery about as much as I need an electric toothbrush. Maybe less. But then there are people like me. I view plastic surgeons almost like fairy god people who, with a wave of their wands or their scalpels, can banish my body dysmorphia for the rest of my life. After the tremendous success of my surgery with Dr. Cohn, I went back for four more procedures with three different plastic surgeons, all of whom I believe could excise the endless imperfections I continued to discover when I looked in the mirror or contorted my body for photo shoots in my guest bedroom. As a budding photographer, I learned all about lighting and shadows and, of course, Photoshop. I remember I would edit these photos and I'd bargain with myself, saying, you can only edit away those things that you intend to fix permanently, either through diet and exercise or plastic surgery. And thus, I got the bags underneath my eyes removed, inspired by my mother, and went back for two more rounds of lipo because, surprise, surprise, I gained back all the weight I'd lost the first time and then some. The big event, though, was the boob job. Here, I'm not lying when I say I didn't really want them to be bigger. I just wanted them to be less slopsided. Losing so much weight had rendered mine completely uneven, and I wanted them to look normal. (laughs) I also wanted minimal scarring, though, and therefore the doctor did the best he could to even them out without any visible incisions. In my view, literally, I thought they looked far improved, especially underneath my clothes. Once more, my mother agreed. Anthony and I started dating in 2014, when I was swimming in singleness. I'd finalized my divorce, lost 40 pounds again, and finally secured the financial security to afford a wardrobe full of high-high stilettos, cut-out jumpers, and two-piece bathing suits for the pool in my condo building. For the first time in my life, I could literally see men turn their heads as I walked past them, dissolve into an adorable stuttering puddle when I walked into an elevator, or even get angry with me before I'd been given a chance to reject their advances. I remember writing in my diary that confidence, if this is what it is, is a little intimidating. I've written a lot about our courtship, sorry, not sorry for using that word because I love it so much, but it bears repeating that I had trouble explaining why I kept saying yes to Anthony's date requests. He was handsome and the most talented musician I'd ever met, but I'd met lots of handsome, talented men during my eight-month single gal phase. After my divorce, I had a clear list of attributes I wanted in any potential partner. The most important of these was respectability, or put another way, someone who didn't provoke the almost knee-jerk protective instinct I felt for every other man in my life, including my father, brother, uncles, cousins, and friends. I discovered a few years into my first marriage that it's very hard to respect someone if you viewed them as a dependent in virtually every way that matters. When my little brother was born, Harmony stood next to me as we peered into his crib. 
Jason was a pudgy baby, all dimples and smiles, like a cabbage patch doll you want to pinch and cuddle and press into your chest. I was three years old when Halmani explained to me what it meant to be a Nuna, or older sister. When he cries, it's your job to make him stop. Jason cried a lot, and I'm a little ashamed to admit that, yes, I was as much the source of his tears as I was the plug. In fact, he cried so much as a baby and toddler, my father grew uncomfortable around him, claiming he didn't know how to handle a crying child. I was six years old when I learned how rejection could serve as the sharp flick of fingers before an endless brigade of dominoes. Jason rejected my father with his tears, and my father rejected him back, and I stood between them, between all the men who fell in line behind them. Years later, Jason learned to hide his pain, and the familiar sight of fresh tears welling up, rolling down his cheeks before collecting in that one dimple we all love so very much, grew rare. Harmony had explained that it was my job to eliminate my brother's pain, She never explained how. So, I did what came naturally. I absorbed his hurts, as if by osmosis I could draw out the stings that wounded him. I grew overly sensitized to those things, guarded against harms that threatened both of us now, and eventually, those that threatened all the men I viewed as inextricably tied to me. I don't think my ex-husband wanted me to view him as my charge. In fact, I know he didn't but he was wounded in ways I couldn't ignore and therefore couldn't help but absorb. Needless to say, this was among a number of things that doomed our partnership because in the end, we weren't partners. By the time we divorced, I no longer wanted to be with someone who professed he couldn't live without me. For once, I wanted to be in a relationship with a man who could totally live without me, even if he didn't want to, who didn't just think that he would be fine without me, but someone who could prove it. And by this... I didn't mean someone who dismissed me or devalued me or took me for granted, all of which can be done by a man who really believes he cannot live without you, by the way. I simply wanted to experience a partnership, one in which we took turns carrying life's loads, carefully investigating our respective baggage while towing the boundaries we erected with our bodies and the stories they contained. And I don't know to this day what it was about the piano guy in the South Loop that kept me coming back, kept me saying yes. In the same way, I had no idea how to stop my brother's tears. Even though I knew I wanted a man I didn't need to protect by placing my own body before his, I had no idea how to identify one. But I did. Anya, I'm so worried about you and Anthony's relationship. My sister-in-law, who lived with me at that time, had the simultaneously lovable yet somewhat grating habit of dribbling unfinished thoughts throughout the house. It reminded me of the year we adopted Rudy. Rudy, a 13-pound Bichon poodle, was a rescue, and by the time he came into our three-bedroom condo in the Gold Coast, he was, as his foster parent described, a marker. When he thought you weren't looking, he'd lift up that hind leg and pee on the fridge, the piano, the hamper, the $2,000 handbag I'd carelessly tossed on the floor next to my bed. But every once in a while, like Rudy, Young Jung could leave a mark. I looked up at her questioningly. She switched to Korean and explained, 
because you're so worried about your body. You're always dieting and exercising so much. You're so strict. And Anthony's body is so perfect. I'm worried you'll become even more strict. I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything, letting the ellipses extend into that comfortable silence that exists only between sisters. She had touched upon something as true and unavoidable as the blue sky that seemed to hover over us that morning, as the piss stain on my brand new Celine bag, as the number that seemed to leap out from the scale I'd just stepped from minutes earlier. Anthony's body was perfect. Years of marathon training, layered over years of lifting weights, ensured that he resembled the statues we pretended to care about on date number six at the Chicago Art Institute. Young Jung was right in that I'd never dated a man whose body exemplified the kind of discipline I could only muster through dysfunction, long bouts of disordered eating and obsessive exercising. And without saying so, she also revealed that she knew exactly how many times I'd weighed myself that day, that she may have even overheard me weeping in the bathroom as I squatted next to the scale. It had been years since I'd stepped foot inside the Cone Center or any other plastic surgeon's office. I had finally made the last payment on the $20,000 loan I'd taken to finance my first procedure, but all that did was remind me that, yes, I had an unused credit line ready to be deployed when the need arose. It's hard for me to describe the allure, but that's what it was. A promise that seemed to sit there on a shelf inside my brain, one that I could dust off and collect on when things grew dire. Despite being as skinny as I'd ever been in my adult life, being with Anthony threatened the fragile sense of self I'd constructed out of yo-yo dieting and liposuction, even if it was so unconscious that it took one of Young Jung's dribblings to see it. Over the course of about a year, two things had happened. Number one, I'd fallen in love with the piano guy in the South Loop. And number two, I knew the only way to keep him from breaking my heart was to be as perfect as he was. So, I did the only thing I knew how. I reached for the shelf. Do you think I'm fat? I know, I know. This is a terrifically unfair question to ask your partner because there's literally no correct answer. Even as the words tumbled out of my mouth, some part of me wanted to corral them back and tuck them safely beneath my tongue. But another part of me felt unleashed, as if finally liberated from the confines of what was fair and unfair. I didn't know what I needed then, so how could I possibly be upset when Anthony, too, didn't know what I needed? How do you define fat, was his reply. And it landed about as well as you'd think it would. We were on our way to a small get-together with my girlfriends and their husbands at a local park. It was the kind of day that would otherwise melt into the background, shrink into the size of a pixel on a large screen TV so that it only became one of a thousand colorful data points that was indistinguishable from all the rest. I was seated in the passenger seat of Anthony's gray Infinity, a car that was, in my opinion, a little too old to be as proud of as he seemed. I stared at my flip-flops. My toes had been freshly pedicured with marshmallow, a pinkish-white shade that, according to the girl at the nail salon, was really popular in summer. I wondered whether I could fit my entire body in that space between the passenger seat and the glove compartment. I'd done it once before, a long time ago, in a different car, a Nissan Altima, when my ex-husband had lost his temper with me at the park. 
Somehow, I'd managed to wedge myself in that space, crossed my arms over my head, and buried it between my knees. It occurred to me that I'd been much larger back then. I jabbed at the window switch even though the AC was on, unveiling a gust of summer heat. The question hadn't been random. The number on the scale had become a daily rebuke that found no outlet, that sank its claws into me until I felt raw and naked. And every day, I grew more and more certain that it was only a matter of time before this man I'd opened myself up to practically by accident would pack up his things and leave me behind as soon as he discovered that I was as unlovable as the body I inhabited. The remainder of the car ride was about as pleasant as you'd expect, one that left me feeling wobbly as my marshmallowed feet stepped out of the car when we finally arrived at the park. About 100 yards in front of us, I could see a cluster of ladies sitting atop a blanket. We marched towards them in silence, his arms dangling next to him as he stared straight ahead. I'd never been good at making friends. The girls enjoying this alfresco afternoon at the park were, in fact, more young Jung's friends than my own, or, put another way, the wives of my brother's friends. I was introduced to all of them when they came to the house to hang out with young Jung or my brother Jason, and I always assumed that they kind of took me in out of pity. It was also not lost on me that I looked nothing like them. They were donned in that dappled cloak of confidence I assumed was only available to those who never had to worry about whether their mother might force them to drink a shot of banana powder or vinegar juice. I noticed none of the husbands were present. Amy, the closest of my adoptive friends, waved hello to both of us before pointing to the tennis court. The boys are playing tennis. Anthony had let slip early on in our relationship that he knew his way around both the tennis court and the basketball court, probably one of the myriad things that I unconsciously found attractive about him. I shrugged my shoulders, as if to say, well, I doubt you want to hang out with us on the blankets. Wordlessly, he made his way over to join the boys while I knelt into the soft green grass. About a half hour later, I saw Anthony sauntering out of the tennis courts. He held his bunched-up shirt in a loose fist with his left hand as he wiped the sweat from his face with his right. The shade from a nearby maple tree briefly covered his body before he emerged, bare to the waist, as chiseled as a GQ cover model. Dude, Anthony's body is jacked, Amy whispered. I know, I said. But not ruefully, in the way some women do when they are as proud of their husband's bodies as they are of their most prized handbag or diamond necklace. My lips came together into a tight smile, the kind where you can feel all of your teeth with your tongue. I know, I repeated. I'm thinking of getting some plastic surgery, was my opening volley when we got back into the infinity. I don't know why I felt the need to announce this. My body was my body. If I wanted to get plastic surgery, that was my choice and my predilection to heal all the unhealable wounds inflicted by decades of body shaming via cone centers across Chicago predated Anthony. And yet, I'd hoped that he'd pick up the gauntlet I'd thrown at his feet, dust it off, hand it back to me as if to say, you don't need to use this with me. Instead, he said, like, what kind? I mean, I can understand if you want to do something about your boob job, but my boob job, I interrupted completely confused. 
As far as I could recall, at no point in our entire relationship had I ever suggested that I was unhappy with my chest. I will spare you the details on the rest of our conversation, but it was during this particular drive that Anthony inadvertently divulged what I perceived to be a distaste for that part of my body that most women deem to be defining. There was no way for him to know the bomb he had detonated that afternoon. The following day, I made an appointment with Dr. Yu, who'd done the original surgery. Within 24 hours, I'd used up a good chunk of that recently paid-off credit line and had an appointment on my calendar for my fifth plastic surgery. So, before you all crucify my husband, I want to say a few things. Number one, Anthony does not have any recollection of this conversation, which, as you'll hear, is understandable given what he was going through at that time. Number two, I must reiterate that I put him in an impossible situation with this conversation, and my own disorder made me uniquely susceptible to the very worst possible interpretation of basically everything. Anthony maintains in his mind it is virtually impossible for him to have said what he did without somehow believing he was trying to be supportive, though he admits that he obviously could have said things better. And finally, he is quite adamantly opposed to the idea that I need to change any aspect of my physical appearance. I was admitted to the hospital for that surgery around the same time that Anthony's father was in the hospital. Robert had been in and out of hospitals due to flare-ups with his autoimmune issues for the entire time that I knew him, but he came from a near-extinct breed of toughness that belied the severity of his suffering. Anthony often repeated the story of how his father declined Novocaine for his dental fillings like one might decline a glass of wine over dinner. That was just the kind of man Robert was, and therefore, I didn't really understand the import of Anthony's more frequent visits to Northwestern Memorial until it was pretty clear that this was no run-of-the-mill health concern. Robert immigrated to the United States when he was only 19 years old. Born and raised in Rome, English was his second language, and like many non-native English speakers, he spent the next several years of his life developing an acumen for not just the language, but for those who spoke it. The same hazel eyes his son had used to arrest my heart peered out from a pair of spectacles, and with them, Robert could size up just about anyone within seconds. I once told him about the time I'd rendered his son speechless, literally, with a $20 spaghetti strap dress from the consignment shop by my apartment. It was, I think, date number seven or eight, and we were at the Thai place that Anthony liked, Oparts. He'd just parked the car, and when I climbed out, he saw me, like all of me, from head to toe for the first time that night. He stood stock still until I finally said, what's wrong? Nothing. You look gorgeous. He said that? Robert asked when I told him the story, looking a little incredulous. I nodded. My son, he began. He is hard to penetrate. I nodded again, appreciating the effort he took to browse through all the words he had at his disposal to describe his firstborn to me. It quickly became the worst-kept secret in the Molinaro family that I viewed Robert as a second father, a man who taught me far more than how to make a delicious red sauce or run a 5K. 
He called me honey, told me I love you before hanging up, hugged me when I came by for breakfast or Sunday dinner. I once asked him during a private conversation if he could have more kids, whether he'd want a son or a daughter, and he replied a daughter so quickly, looking up at me with eyes reflecting a secret so small and perfect it pierced me like a thorn. Like Anthony, Robert kept his own counsel all the way up until the end, radiating a sort of strength and resolve that only a man who denied Novocaine could possibly possess. I spent hours at his bedside in the hospital. I told him stories, scratched his back, fluffed his pillows, or just sat there staring at a framed print of Wyeth's Christina's world held aloft on the wall next to him by a small nail. Sometimes Anthony would be there, sometimes not. When he wasn't, I'd ask Robert to tell me stories about Anthony when he was little, as if his words could puncture the thickness, the heavy desperation that started to hang over us in these quiet moments. While Robert unspooled his tales, I would bargain with God. Or sometimes, directly with Robert. How many grandkids did you want? Was it one or two? Two? A boy and a girl, right? You're going to babysit them both, right? Promise? I would tease, only to see his lips spread into a private smile, that soft glow I coveted filling his eyes. Anthony would be the best father, he said after a pause, and I gripped his hand then, reminding myself that it was my job to make people smile and laugh and breathe. Oh my God, you know he already has a name picked out, right? Magdalena Molinaro. I watched his face, how slowly pain dissolved into bemusement and then flickered back to pain before it settled into despondence. You know, I had surgery a few days ago, I said, trying to change the subject. He arched his eyebrows, concern pursing his lips as he tried to form the question. No, no, I said before he could. It wasn't anything serious. It was just plastic. He cocked his head a little. He was curious. And it occurred to me that there was something absolutely death-defying about reading Robert's face. Just a little nip and tuck, fix a few issues, I said with a smile. His response was immediate and final. You are beautiful. We left it at that. I said no more, and neither did he. I sat back in the hospital chair as Robert dozed. Although I'd promised Robert grandchildren, the truth was, I was still unsure whether Anthony and I would actually make it. Despite leaving behind the wreckage that was my first marriage, somehow... Love remained as complicated and opaque as whatever it was that was taking Robert away from us. Anthony is hard to penetrate, Robert had said. Only just a few days earlier, I'd sat on the stool of Anthony Steinway, the one his father had bought for him, and yelled, I want to see into your heart. I threw the words at him like a grenade, hoping it would carve him open, but Anthony stayed as resolute as ever, saying only, It's just not easy for me. I checked to see that Robert was sleeping before pressing the heel of my hand into my eye. I was irredeemably selfish, childish, greedy even, to ask anything at all of Anthony while his father was ill. There was time enough for I love yous and seeing into each other's hearts, I thought, shame prickling up my neck. Anthony, his mother, and brother arrived the smell of rain and the turning leaves of the city clinging to their clothes, the bottoms of their shoes. I got up to go, pressed my hand gently atop Robert's. He was awake now, 
but before I let go, he laid his hand on top of mine and whispered, Don't ever do it again. Do what? I asked. Surgery. Don't ever do it again. You don't need it. I never gave Robert's words much weight. We say things when life grows violent, and yes, all death, however quiet, even those that occur with a sigh, is violent. We say things we mean with every inch of ourselves, but we also say things only to fill the air, to extract another measure or two out of life, even if the notes are obviously off-key. I assumed Robert was saying the things that fathers are supposed to say when their daughters reveal even the slightest bit of uncertainty over their appearance, in the same way I promised the man I viewed as my father the grandchildren I knew he wanted. Anthony and I did get married, said our vows in the same city Robert was born and raised. But we don't have children, and at this point, we likely never will. I haven't been back to the Cone Center since Dr. Cone suggested I adopt the cabbage soup diet, but in 2019, I made an appointment with Dr. Applebaum, a smart young plastic surgeon with perfectly coiffed red hair and a pension for Kate Spade Kitten Heels based in New York City, who promised she could excise the fat beneath my underarms. I was on my way back towards the operating table when the prerequisite mammogram revealed an irregularity in my left breast. Ultimately, I did end up back on the operating table, but not for a cosmetic procedure. Luckily, it turned out to be some calcification, not cancer. After six months of mammograms, doctor's appointments, and visits to the hospital, the thought of any surgery, even plastic surgery, made me want to curl up into a ball, so I indefinitely canceled my appointment with a sartorially inclined Dr. Applebaum. And then, COVID happened. Six months ago, I ran my hands along my belly while interrogating the body in the mirror, the rippling and the puckering that resulted from Dr. Cohn's tummy tuck. What had looked so flawless in 2011 now revealed itself for what it was, an error, one that could only be fixed with another tummy tuck, I surmised. So I picked up the phone and called a nearby plastic surgeon, one I found off a list, top 10 plastic surgeons in L.A., I made an appointment in a month. His calendar was booked up, but I had to cancel it when I was invited to fly out to Utah for an event. I've come so close often enough, and yet, who knows? Perhaps I feel guilty that I couldn't keep one promise, so a part of me I can't even describe keeps me loyal to the other. Or maybe Robert is watching down from above, throwing up roadblocks by use of mammograms, pandemics, a trip to Utah. Or maybe I let myself believe what Robert said, swallowed his words, and buried that truth deep inside of me until I'd forgotten I'd consumed it. Don't ever do it again. You don't need it. You are beautiful. Beautiful.